Welcome to the Association of Insurance Compliance Professionals podcast. AICP serves the insurance compliance community by promoting relationships, exchanging information, and providing learning opportunities within a dynamic regulatory environment. You're listening to The Insurance Industry, State and Federal Agencies Working Together with your host, Dan Cotter, attorney and counselor at Howard & Howard Attorneys PLLC, and who currently serves as the AICP's general counsel. Join Dan as he sits down with Jeff Baker and Kate Pellino, both of whom are with the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies, NAMIC, to discuss the role of the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, NAIC, and how federal and state regulatory agencies interact with the insurance industry on a regular basis. As NAMIC's general counsel, Jeff Baker is responsible for the oversight and development of NAMIC's legal and regulatory compliance resources, products, and services for its member companies, who include the largest to the smallest property and casualty insurers in America. A 25-year veteran of the insurance industry as a litigator, in-house counsel, and trade association representative, Jeff graduated from the College of William and Mary and the University of Idaho College of Law and has earned the designations of Chartered Property and Casualty Underwriter and Fellow, Life Management Institute. Kate Paulino serves as NAMIC's Director of Public Policy and is responsible for providing the association and its membership with key policy expertise and analysis on legislative and regulatory issues of interest to the property casualty insurance industry at the state, federal, and international levels. She holds an MPA from Brown University, an EMBA from Suffolk University, and a law degree from the University of Connecticut. And now, here's your host, Dan Cotter. Welcome to this latest AICP insurance podcast. This one focused on the interrelationships between insurers and the regulated industry and the regulators that regulate them. Insurance is an industry that is overseen and regulated primarily at the state level. Each of the 50 states and the District of Columbia have insurance departments or agencies that oversee that state's insurance business. The states are members of the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, the NAIC. The NAIC has various committees and working groups that address issues of importance to the industry. In addition, there are federal acts and laws that apply to the insurance industry, including the Office of Foreign Asset Control and the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act governing privacy. The federal and state regulatory agencies interact with the industry on a regular basis and review and approve a variety of industry matters. Listen to this podcast to learn more about those interrelationships and how the industry and regulators interact at NAIC meetings, and in general. And I'm pleased to have on the show today two individuals from NAMIC, and we'll learn a little bit about NAMIC in a minute, an association of mutual insurance companies, Jeff Baker and Kate Palino. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Ian. Good to be here. Good to be here as well. And Jeff, before we get started and, and talk a little bit about both of your backgrounds, why don't you tell us a little bit about NAMIC and what it is and what it does so listeners can have a better understanding. Absolutely. Thanks, Dan. NAMIC is actually the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies, so NAMIC is the shorthand for it. We are the largest property and casualty insurance trade group with a diverse membership of more than 1,400 local, regional, and national member companies, including seven of the top 10 property and casualty insurers in the United States. NAMIC members lead the personal lines sector, representing 66% of the homeowner's insurance market and 53% of the auto market. Through our advocacy programs, for instance, what Kate does, uh, we promote public policy solutions that benefit NAMIC member companies and the policyholders they serve and foster greater understanding and recognition of the unique alignment of interest between management and policyholders of mutual insurance companies. 
Thank you, Jeff, for that informative description of NAMIC. And as mentioned, both Kate and Jeff are from NAMIC, and we'll learn more about them. Kate, why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience in insurance and with the NAIC and uh, what you do at NAMIC? Thanks, Dan. One of the neat things about the insurance industry is the opportunity to contribute in many different roles over the course of a career. My industry jobs during law school all related to litigation. First, I was deep in the weeds with deposition digesting for environmental liability cases. Then I interned with a judge on an insurance case. As I was enjoying work, I switched to study in an evening program and went to work full-time as a commercial lines litigation manager. After graduating, my early jobs related to reinsurance and then to product and market efforts. It was in that early filing capacity that I first interacted with AICP. In these regulatory roles, I was able to get great internal client exposure, actuarial underwriting and operations through understanding different products, as well as putting together how the company worked and participating in merger integration projects. This led to pursuing a business degree while working in product management. Both were really lots of fun. While I had heard of the NEIC, it was not yet part of my work. It wasn't really until I had moved to DC and started in the law department of a trade association doing public policy work that I was introduced to that organization. At that point, I was largely interested in the activity of the D Committee, which we can come back to later. After a decade there, I returned to a former company where I again worked in an actuarial department focusing on business insurance, regulatory research and compliance, and then in the law department supporting compliance clients, among others. Next, I moved to NAMIC. While previously I had supported government relations efforts, this was my first time to serve as a lobbyist myself. Today, I'm still with NAMIC, having returned to a public policy role focusing on a variety of issues. These days, more of my NEIC focus is looking at the C committee. Again, we can talk committee shortly. So while that's a lot of variety, it spans complementary functional areas, legal, business unit, compliance, regulatory, actuarial, government relations, and public policy, all within the insurance sector. Being fortunate to grow within one industry allowed me to continue to learn and to contribute by connecting people and ideas to help work with others to craft fitting solutions. It's at one of these intersections of people, ideas, and solutions where I think we can pick up shortly to talk more about working with the NEIC. Thank you, Kate. And for those listeners, uh, Kate's career might be a little bit atypical, but one of the things that I have found in being around the insurance industry for about 33 years is that people do change roles and get a lot of exposure to different things. And uh, the insurance arena is an exciting one and filled with a lot of career potential. So for you students listening, get some words. Uh, Jeff, can you do the same about your uh, background and experience for us? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, riffing off of what you just said, Dan, it's one of the things we, we somewhat joke about in the insurance industry is no one grows up and says, wow, I want to be in insurance. So oftentimes, kind of like Kate and myself, you you somewhat almost fall into it, which is my background. I went to law school as well. My, my background is actually very similar to Kate. I went to law school, actually focused on litigation practice. I was on the trial team and thought, wow, I want to be a litigator. Uh, I ended up with a, a clerkship my 2L summer working for a law firm in Boise, Idaho, uh, whose bread and butter was insurance defense. And a lot of it was first party bad faith defense work. I went to work for a trial court judge right out of law school and then went back to this law firm and really delved into and dove into the insurance law world. That's where I got my first experience. And a lot of it was that first party bad faith defense, uh, coverage opinions, 
really learned how to read an insurance policy. One of our clients was a small life insurance company uh, just outside Boise. And I ended up going in-house with them after about what I call a, a year and a half interview where I was doing work for them uh, as an outside lawyer. But I became general counsel at age, age 29 for this small life insurance company. I ended up staying there for about 17 years. And over that time period, we grew the life insurance company to from 22 to 44 states. We acquired three property and casualty companies. We transformed the company into a mutual insurance holding company. Uh, and I did pretty much everything you could do as in-house counsel. I was the only lawyer, but I did corporate governance, contracts, insurance policies, transactional matters, oversaw litigation. I was the chief compliance officer. I oversaw market conduct and pretty much everything else. I, I would say I did everything but walk the dogs and wash the windows there. I came to NAMIC in 2017 to build our compliance department. We didn't have a compliance function before that, but it's the complement to our advocacy function where they kind of stop, they work on the front end. I pick up on the back end for our members. And what we do is we research, analyze, and notify our members of their various compliance obligations and all the insurance company functions. So think about the policy life cycle from the harebrained idea of a new policy or a new feature all the way to the end or withdrawal of the policy and everything in between. And we also provide educational opportunities for our members on a wide variety of legal and compliance topics. Thanks, Jeff. Very informative. And in some ways, we have similar uh, paths. I, I spent a short time at a life insurance company after spending most of my career in PNC operations and now do a variety of private practice of health and life and, and PNC, but very interesting. Kate, we, we, you know, we've talked about the NEIC. I introduced it briefly uh, at the introduction, but can you tell us? what the NAIC, NAIC is and how it is structured? Sure. First, what is the NAIC or the National Association of Insurance Commissioners? One way to think about the NAIC is as a group focusing on state insurance regulators, it's a way for commissioners and some state insurance regulatory staff from around the country to come together in person and virtually to discuss issues and to formulate next steps, including model laws and regulations. Importantly, they also develop standards for accreditation and for NEIC organization provides a variety of support for insurance regulators. You may be familiar with one of the services that NEIC provides, SURF, or the System for Electronic Rates and Forms Filings. When I started my career, there was no centralized computer system for submitting filings. Now, according to the NEIC, in 2019, over 577,000 SURF transactions were processed. Next, you asked, how is the NEIC structured? Let's first look at those working to support the organization. They're located in Kansas City, Washington, D.C., and New York City. In terms of staff, the NEIC's 2021 proposed budget indicates a headcount of 495, about half of which appeared to be IT and technical support. When we think of the NEIC, we often think of the commissioners coming together. These days, national meetings occur three times a year. When you consider 56 jurisdictions coming together, you can understand that there's a need for structure, and this is done a few ways. First, officers are elected annually to help lead the membership. Second, geographic zones provide a chance for regulators to discuss efforts regionally. And third, there are committees or parent committees with letter names, which then have subgroups assigned to consider particular topics. As I mentioned earlier, over the years, I've been most closely following the efforts of the Market Regulation and Consumer Affairs D Committee, as well as the Property and Casualty Insurance C Committee. Those interested in life and annuities, health and managed care, financial issues, and international issues would be following other committees. 
The committees are supported by NEIC technical staff who develop special expertise to assist or advise the regulators leading them. Insurance commissioner turnover and shifting committee assignments may mean more reliance on NEIC staff for institutional memory and consistency. Outside of NEIC meetings, committees and their subgroups hold remote meetings. Many meetings are open to the public. You can join by phone or video link, and the calendar of meetings is posted on the NEIC's website. Indeed, for those interested in learning more, the NEIC website offers lots of background information. Thank you, Kate. And Jeff, we discussed in planning that you are more on the back end, and you mentioned that in your kind of background and experience, helping NAMIC members navigate the models of things coming out of the NAIC. You have a wealth of experience from your work as in-house counsel. Tell us about that and about how the work of the NAIC related to what insurance companies need to do on the back end, and how does this all relate to the work you do now? Yeah, so as Kate uh, alluded to and you mentioned, the NAIC comes out with model laws. They develop these models, and the intent of the models is that they become enacted through either the legislative process state by state, because insurance is state regulated. We're not talking about in general. Now, we'll, we'll get into the federal aspects of it in a minute here. But uh, so the NEIC comes out with these model laws and they have to be either enacted as legislation or adopted as regulations, depending on what they are and their status. And it's a years long process. So some states will move more quickly while others move more slowly. And it really depends on their interest level. There is a way, and I think Kate might talk about how they can, uh, the NEIC can sort of make the states uh, do what they want them to do in terms of enacting or adopting these things. Uh, but it really does, it can be a long process. So as the former, as a chief compliance officer, when I was in-house, I was on the front lines of compliance. And I, I looked at these as these models were becoming enacted state by state. Uh, I was responsible for developing the policies and procedures with our functional department, sales, marketing, actuarial, underwriting, policyholder service claims, back office stuff like accounting and investments, and educating our senior executives and boards on the compliance issues and challenges that would come out of these models. I remember when the, uh, in fact, when the, the newest, the cybersecurity model, the Insurance uh, Data Security Act was under development, I took a keen interest in that. And I said, hey, this is going to, this is going to require some compliance uh, expertise and work. And so I was educating our board ahead of time as to what was going to do this. So, um, you know, to, to comply with that. So one of the primary reasons I came to NAMIC is the fact that I had been in the shoes of our uh, member companies. In fact, three of the companies, those three companies we acquired were all NAMIC members. And I could understand, like Kate, the inner workings of an insurer and how some of these laws, whether they're NAIC models or not, can affect insurers' compliance obligations. So. In other words, uh, I can walk the walk and talk the talk, having been in-house for 17 years and basically amusing my practical experience to assist other member companies. Thank you. That's great. And you mentioned the cyber uh, model, and, and that's uh, picked up steam again in 2021, continues to seem to we're about to get to about a half of the states where they may have uh, enacted uh, that act. Um, and others, you know, there's the suitability of, of life insurance annuities, and that, that thing has not been adopted by almost any states in, in the 10 or 15 years it's been around. So uh, like, like you said, Kate, and you can probably explain better how some of these acts can be enforced through accreditation and other things. Uh, you mentioned the federal uh, government, and, and we talk about insurance being a state-regulated thing, but there are other alphabet soups of regulatory bodies that get involved with insurance to a certain extent. 
Uh, Jeff, can you uh, tell listeners a little about OFAC and what it does? Yeah, absolutely. So to, to, to put it in very short terms, it's essentially don't do business with bad guys. Uh, <laughs> so terrorists, uh, drug dealers, international crim, you know, criminal crime rings. But the OFAC, or the Office of Foreign Assets Control, is a division of the U.S. Tre- Treasury Department. So it is federal. And what it does, it administers and enforces economic and trade sanctions based on U.S. foreign policy and national security goals against targeted foreign countries and regimes, terrorists, international narcotics traffickers, uh, others engaged in uh, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and other threats to national security, foreign policy or the U.S. economy. So the way they do this is the office or OFAC publishes a list of individuals and companies that are owned or controlled by or acting or on behalf of targeted countries. Uh, it also includes lists of individuals, groups, and entities, again, such as terrorists and narcotics traffickers that are designated under programs that are not country-specific. So you can have countries, you can have organizations, you can have entities, you can have persons. So bottom line, a financial institution, any financial institution, and that for purposes of OFAC includes insurance companies, are legally prohibited from conducting business of any kind with any person, country, or entity on these OFAC lists. And as such, uh, institutions like insurance companies, they must have procedures to proactively prevent the transactions from occurring, either through a manual process of checking these lists manually or an automated process or both. Now, when I was in-house, we did both. We had some manual checking. We had some automated checking. So at the end of the day, uh, insurers and banks and other financial institutions must ensure that any payee, so it could be a prospective insured or a claimant or a third party, whomever, if money is coming in or going out, you have to make sure that it's not going in or out to or from anybody on this OFAC list. And the problem is the list changes constantly. So insurers and other financial entities have to continuously and regularly check this list. It's not it's not a static thing. You can't just do it once and be done. It's an ongoing process. Thanks. And, and this past uh, June or early July, I forget which it was, the Supreme Court of the United States actually had a Fair Credit Reporting Act case. As Jeff mentioned, there's a lot of uh, false positives. The names change all the time. And one individual went with his family to a car dealership and his name showed up on the OFAC list. It was not him. He was denied credit and denied being able to buy a car and was humiliated in front of his family. He won at the Supreme Court. The rest of the plaintiffs who, whose name maybe was not released or it wasn't made public uh, did not win. So OFAC does come up, and it's one of those things that a lot of people, I think, uh, probably don't fully appreciate. But if you're in the insurance industry, we've been doing this a long time. Hey, can you tell us about uh, another federal law that came into being in the late 1990s, Gramm-Leach-Bliley? Yeah, Dan, continuing with the alphabet soup theme, the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act is often known as GLBA. This was a landmark piece of federal financial services legislation enacted in 1999. And one component we still hear about regularly in the insurance context relates to Title V dealing with privacy. Importantly, it contains a number of crucial business function exceptions. Financial institutions are prohibited from providing particular information to non-affiliates for marketing purposes. Among its requirements, GLBA sets forth certain notice requirements and disclosure standards for non-public personal financial information. Regulation of Title V privacy standards was a task assigned to the functional financial institution regulators and for insurers subject to state laws, this was left to the states. 
Here's an example of where the NEIC developed a model to allow for relatively consistent implementation across the country. And it wasn't necessarily an easy task because some states had already enacted an earlier NEIC model. The NEIC crafted a model which it then unanimously adopted as number 672, the Privacy of Consumer Financial and Health Information Regulation in September 2000, and most states then took action. It was not the end of the story, though. In 2016, an NEIC workgroup prepared and then the Parent Market Regulation and Consumer Affairs D-Committee adopted a model bulletin to address a practical issue of redundant notices, which was consistent with an approach in an amendment to GLBA. Today, the NEIC is again considering these issues through its Privacy Protection D working group. I should also mention that GLBA touches on safeguarding consumer information, and the NESC has a model specific to the topic of cybersecurity. And this is um, what uh, Jeff and Dan, you both mentioned earlier. It's model number 668 called the Insurance Data Security Model Law. Jeff, do you want to tell us about that model law? Yeah, I mean, the, the model is it, it, it essentially requires insurance companies to do a risk assessment of potential cybersecurity holes. So essentially you go out and you find a white hat hacker in some sense, and you have them do a risk assessment and you're required to uh, plug the holes and you have to come up with a written information security program. You have to have an incident response plan. You have to have plans in place to be able to uh, investigate uh, potential cybersecurity events. You have to report those events to regulators. You have to provide notice to policyholders. Uh, there is a board reporting aspect. There's also a reporting aspect to your insurance, your domestic insurance regulators. So it's a fairly complex, long uh, law and does require lots of steps and hoops and things to be drafted by uh, companies. Now, granted, my opinion that any company that isn't doing this already or hasn't done it already is probably way behind the curve. Uh, you know, even though it's only been enacted, I think right now in 16 or 17 states, uh, you know, companies should be aware of this and they should probably already be working on compliance. And it is, as Kate said, these also, um, I mean, like the OFAC list, these laws aren't static. They change all the time. And so cyber and privacy laws right now are really kind of at the top of insurance companies' list of things that they're paying attention to because they are constantly changing. A lot of the NEIC can be very reactive or regulators can be reactive or legislators, like they see this news about ransomware. Well, oh my gosh, we better we better go you know pass a law or have a new model or something that addresses ransomware in more detail. So what's happening is you know, companies are are having to to kind of react to some of this stuff. And what again, what Kate's side of the NAMIC house does is really work with the NEIC to help them understand how insurance companies are going to have to deal with some of these things. But you know, the problem is, you know, compliance is so important because if you fail to abide by uh, privacy law or cybersecurity law, you can you can be sanctioned financially. Uh, from a variety of different entities. It could be the state attorney general or the insurance regulator. So uh, being in compliance with these laws as they evolve is very important. Very, very true. It's, it's so important that companies follow these laws. And so again, for those listeners trying to figure out what they want to do, compliance is such a huge part of insurance and it becomes more and more complex with, as Jeff just mentioned, cyber laws changing, the OFAC list changing, as Kate talked about. So really important 
Uh, let's turn to the NAIC meetings. And for those who have never t attended one, uh, Kate, can you describe what a non-pandemic meeting looks like and how the industry folks participate and in interact at those meetings? Yeah, Dan, these are huge national meetings. The official numbers for the fall 2019 meeting counted nearly 2,300 participants. And this number includes lots of different people. For example, there were over 600 commissioners and state insurance regulators and over 130 staff members from the NEIC and their related organizations. There were also some attendees from other federal and state government agencies or from the legislative branch, legislators or staff. Some attend from the media as well. And there are stakeholders or interested parties. These include consumer representatives, some of whom are funded by the NEIC, insurance industry representatives, and others. Unofficially, the numbers of people around an NEIC national meeting are even higher. Some may not register for or attend the meetings officially, but they may plan to visit with people in any number of ways over coffee and wraparound events at meals, receptions, or in the halls. Let's see, you also asked about how industry folks participate. The answer will vary. As someone from a trade association, my primary responsibility is to cover certain meetings. This may involve taking notes to report to members, as well as speaking on a topic on an agenda or responding to comments made by other instructors interested parties or regulators. These large and regularly scheduled events provide an opportunity to put faces with names and to contribute over time. It's also a chance to connect with members to learn their concerns on particular issues and to gather suggestions of ideas to share with regulators. Of course, much of that work also needs to be done in advance as well. Great. And can you tell us uh, what are some big issues you and your members are dealing with at the NAIC currently? If you think about the groups I mentioned earlier, there's tons going on, multiple committee or work group meetings and our projects happen concurrently. Each group has approved charges or goals set every year. These are listed right on the landing page of the group if you're ever interested in learning more. NAMIC is following many issues on behalf of our members. We have a team that attends each meeting and we focus mainly on the issues within our respective portfolios. A few things I'm following right now might be of interest. First, there's a question of what kinds of activity the Privacy Protections Working Group may consider taking and whether and how it will dovetail with other existing laws and regulations. And it's important to consider the specific context of the business of insurance and the insurance relationship in that work. Another topic that's very compelling to me in many forums is resilience. Last year, the NEIC Executive Committee established a new Climate Resiliency EX Task Force that group then created five work streams to consider different aspects of the issue. You can see through that example that the NEIC is able to engage on new issues and is not locked into the items that are already on the table. There are obviously many more issues on which NAMIC participates actively, but those are just a few examples of things that are keeping me busy. Great. So you described the meetings, but a lot of work, as you mentioned, and interaction takes place between meetings. Can one of you describe that process and what that looks like? You're absolutely right. Lots of work happens between the big spring, summer, and fall national meetings. As I mentioned earlier, NEIC has their calendar showing many meetings when regulators are connecting and sharing draft work products or discussing their approach to an issue. For the industry representatives and for trade associations in particular, it's important to attend these discussions. When an NEIC group exposes a document such as a draft model or a white paper, NAMIC will work with members to consider if there's a consensus on the public policy issues and then share feedback with the committee chairs or other leaders and with NEIC staff. The NEIC hosts other events too. For example, they have an insurance summit, which is more educational in nature, 
Well, those are some high-level thoughts on interactions with the NEIC. Thank you, Kate. And again, a reminder to listeners that the insurance industry, it's regulated at the state level. And so trade associations like NAMIC are so crucial uh, for their members because it's hard to try to keep track of a 50-headed hydra or 51-headed hydra in terms of the challenges and differences at each state level. And so trade groups like NAMIC are exceptionally designed and, and exceptionally good at keeping track of all those things, having great relationships with the regulators, in this case, putting input into whether the members of, of the trade group are, in fact, okay with whatever new policies coming out. Well, I want to thank you, Kate and Jeff, for this very informative podcast, and thank you for joining me today on this latest insurance podcast for AICP. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Dan, for having us. Really appreciate it.